Welcome to the Geneva Center for Security Policy weekly podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Vallée, Associate Fellow with the GCSP Global Fellowship Initiative. For the next few weeks, I'm talking with subject matter experts to explain issues of peace, security, and international cooperation. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. The focus this week at the Leadership and International Security course is Africa. And among the specialists who are giving their insights to the course participants, we have Ambassador Yvette Stevens, who I'm very pleased to also have as a guest on the podcast this week. Ambassador Stevens represents the great combination of experience and diversity among the GCSP Global Fellowship Initiative. With 28 years of international civil service with the United Nations, and another six as a diplomat for Sierra Leone. Her original career began as a trained engineer from the Moscow Power Engineering Institute and Imperial College London, which recently honored her for her subsequent accomplishments. After teaching engineering in university herself, she joined the UN agencies, first the International Labour Organization and then the United Nations High Commissioner's Office for Refugees in both Geneva and country postings, and later the United Nations Office of the Special Advisor for Africa. Her final UN function was as United Nations Assistant Emergency Relief Coordinator and Director of the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in Geneva from 2004 to 2006. But this was far from over as she then became a freelance consultant on humanitarian issues and disaster risk reduction and also advised the Sierra Leone government as energy policy advisor. In 2012, she was appointed Sierra Leone's permanent representative to the UN in Geneva where she worked uh, the full range of issues handled by the UN agencies here, from human rights to trade and to disarmament. She's also designated a Geneva gender champion. So welcome to the podcast, Ambassador Stevens. Thank you. <laughs> Very pleased here. Well, thank you uh, for you to, to join us uh, this morning. Given this remarkably wide experience of yours, uh, my first question to you is, with was, was your engineering background, uh, what are the events and factors that drew you to an international civil service and diplomatic career? Well, it started a long time ago. I remember as a child, maybe at age six, and um, we used to listen, our only um, contact with the outside world was the BBC radio. And I used to sit with my uncle as well, listen to the BBC radio. And I imagine this world outside my country. I was growing up in colonial Syria. Imagine this world. And I felt I had to be a part of it, but I didn't know how. Anyway, later, when at school, I was doing well in, in, in maths and physics. And, um, and of course, I decided to do a career in engineering, which was, again, strange for mm. a woman. In those days, in the, can you imagine the 60s in Africa? But then I got, I, I, I was really determined that I wanted to do something, you know, especially something that, you know, I could really make a contribution to my country's development. So that was how I, I came back. I'd finished my studies, came back to Leone. I was practicing engineering and I was teaching at the university. When one day I'm thinking, oh, well, this is, this is me, engineering, I'll help my country. But then one day I was sitting in my office and then somebody came. It was the director from ILO and they were, he was on a recruitment mission. And he said to me, um, we are starting this project on technologies for rural women in Africa. And when we were setting up this team of a sociologist, economist, and an engineer, and we thought we wanted to have women to do this, but we never knew we would, we would meet, we would know about an African engineer 
to come and work. We got the sociologists and economists. We were thinking we'd have to go somewhere else to look for the engineer. But then somebody just gave me your CV to say, there is a woman engineer. And so he tried to, 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 to convince me. At first, I thought it was, I had had a difficult time because I had my children in, in UK and it was very difficult, which was why I gave up my studies in the end. So I said, oh, no, thank you. Can we have the project here? And he says, no, 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 no. You know, it has to be in, in Geneva. And then that night, I, I, when I, after refusing, I was thinking that night and I said, yeah, but remember you really wanted to be part of this international scene. I mean, isn't this your opportunity? Because as I said before, I didn't even know that engineers had any place in the UN. So then I came back and I said, yes, and this was how I came to, to Geneva. But what was interesting for me was I was working on these subjects with my own country, and I felt that doing it from the level of, the, of ILO and the international um, um, scene would help me not only to help people in my country, but also in other countries. So this was how I came to the to the to the to the international scene as an international civil servant. Mm-hmm. Of course, later I got I got sucked into it, if you like, and then I saw the all the other aspects of that were so important for for countries to move forward. That I I, I first of all at the time when I went to UNHCR. There are many refugees in the world. Many of them were from, most of them were from Africa. Mm-hmm. And I thought that there was a role to play there. We were setting up, I was head of the section, setting up camps and settlements. And I was able to bring my engineering knowledge into the design of camps and settlements for refugees. And this was, so this was it. This was how I came and I stayed, I came for initially three years and I stayed the next 28 years in the United Nations. Yeah. Well, you know, that's absolutely remarkable, this realization of how your being on, on a wider world stage could have such an impact, an intensely local impact in your country, on your continent. And indeed, the, the trail that you, you blaze for, for women and for women engineers in particular, that's something that is uh, really good uh, to have seen recognized as a need by the, the UN, among others. So um, uh, my next question is uh, about, uh, of course, this international career. What, uh, what lessons has it brought to you about both the wider, working, wider world's workings as much as the workings of Africa. As I said earlier, it's that it's, it gave me a perspective. As an engineer working in Sierra Leone, I never had this wide perspective about how th- everything fits together mm-hmm. to get the desired result. Coming to the UN made me know that it's not just concentrating on energy, on, on engineering, on, on development, but that it, all these pieces fit together. Human rights, peace, and development, they're all parts of the same, uh, am I wrong to say coin because <laughs> coin only has two sides, but they're all parts that have to fit in together mm-hmm. if, if you're going to advance. I didn't, for instance, when I was working as an engineer, I didn't even, I had about refugees, humanitarian work, I didn't think that was important for me. But coming to the UN, I became absolutely convinced that you have to have a wider view of the world. If you want to succeed in your profession, you cannot ignore the other aspects which make things work. So uh, indeed, uh, the the engineer basically is trained to uh, devise the machinery and understand its workings. And uh, you just take it, of course, to another plan in that sense. Uh, so according to your experience and, and, and viewpoints, do you identify different challenges for Africa that your career has brought in perspective to you rather than the ones that people in different positions would be doing? 
Well, I wouldn't claim to be the only one who has these um, ideas, but I think I should I should bring it up because those are the things I feel strongly about. I think, first of all, initially when I joined the UN, it was still at the stage where Africa was looking up to the United Nations, looking up to the outside world for mm-hmm. its development. And one of the things, and I was happy that in 2001, something started, that Africa had to actually be in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. Africa had to deal to stop this donor beneficiary uh, mentality where they come to with a begging bowl to beg. They should um, approach this or identify their priorities and work with international communities as partners because mm-hmm. Africa has a lot to give. And I believe that this donor beneficiary mentality is something that was that, uh, that went against the, 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 uh, what Africa was looking for in terms of its own development. Mm-hmm. So that was one. And the other things I felt that was um, important is that, African, is that Africa needs to have better leadership. Mm-hmm. I think leadership is a big problem in Africa. Mm-hmm. Africa has failed to have the sort of leadership that a country like Singapore had, for instance. Mm-hmm. And I stress leadership because all too often people talk about, oh, democracy, demo- and meaning democracy means having democratic elections every four years, every five years. For me, democracy is important, provided that you have the right leaders, because you can be changing, you know, uh, governments every four or five years. And you still remain in one place because in the context of Africa, I should also add that when you have a new government, it doesn't necessarily mean you have a better government. It is just, um, you know, all sorts of things come into play, ethnic affiliations, etc. And the leaders of Africa that we have had, unfortunately, many of them put self before country. Mm-hmm. So what you have, what you see, and if you look at it country after country, a leader comes in, and then later you hear about all the corruption of trying to, you know, acquire as much health, as much as as much wealth as they could get from being from being the leaders. And also, you know, corruption, I think, is something which, which really needs to be given serious attention in Africa. And it is not only that corruption is unique to Africa. Mm-hmm. There is corruption everywhere. But the thing that makes it different in Africa is that if Africa is poor and you have corruption on top of that, it makes it even more serious. And the other thing I think also is that um, I think ethnic preferences also. You know, when, when, when Africa was divided into, in Berlin into different countries, it did not respect ethnic lines. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, when the African, uh, African Union came into existence, when the OAU, Organization of African Unity, came into existence, they thought it wise that borders should remain as they were, because if they had opened that up, God knows where that would have gone. So within, we find that within countries, there are many ethnic backgrounds. And countries and people tend to cling to leaders of their ethnic background. One of the reasons being that if it's if people are poor, they, they sort of want somebody in, in the lead where whom they could come to or come to and cry to and whatever. So they tend to back parties, not on the basis of their ideologies, but on the basis of there are links to that particular person, ethnic links. And that is something also which is going against the when it comes to African leadership. So those are, those are two of the, some of the things I think I would give a lot of focus on. 
And I think that needs to be focused on a lot more if Africa is to move. Indeed, there have been examples of good leadership. And I take Botswana, for example. Botswana had good leadership. And it is way ahead in Africa than many other countries because of its leadership. Uh, yes, indeed. I, th- I think this, yeah. uh, this focus on... Uh, uh, really a qualitative uh, assessment, uh, I mean, you know, both in the uh, uh, development policies, but also in the quality of the leadership is uh, something that obviously ties to my next question, which which would be precisely what, what are the priorities that you would identify for the international community to focus their efforts on the behalf of Africa? I think, first of all, there is a problem in Africa, in a problem that I've never got to understand and for which, you know, one gets to a point of frustration is that Africa, in terms of natural resources, Africa is the richest continent. And yet Africans are the poorest people in the world. Something does not make sense to me. And again, it's because Africa depends a lot on, 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 on export of its commodities. Mm-hmm commodities by prices which are fixed by those by the buyers themselves mm-hmm. and, and the African farmer who has worked hard let's take um, the chocolate industry and um, the cacao the African who has worked so hard in growing the crop only has a tiny weeny percentage of what of the of the profits from that crop that is gone mm-hmm. then again what African would need then to address that is, and this has been said over and over again, is to add value to its commodities. Now, it's been said that when I went to New York to work as the director for Africa, it was all yes. There was a new partnership for Africa's development, and it's been, it's been repeated time and time again that Africa needs to add value to its commodities. But it has not been able to do so in a way that would actually take Africa from where it is and bring it to a higher level based on what on its natural resources. Some of the reasons, of course, uh, that I could give to that and which needs um, which needs a lot of more attention, and as I say, it's not new, I mean, it's everybody knows except that there's no action, is that first of all, Africa needs the infrastructure. Yes. You cannot talk about value addition if you do not have infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And I will look at infrastructure at two levels. You need to have the physical infrastructure, you know, to be able to, um, even if you want, people say you have to attract investment. Now, an investor is not going to come to your country if you don't have no electricity, for mm-hmm. instance. Yeah. I mean, an investor is not coming, going to come to your country if, um, if your transportation system is so weak that by the time they move whatever they are manufacturing to the port, it's, the cost is multiplied three or four times over. So infrastructure is one area where I feel that any well-meaning any well-meaning initiative to assist Africa should be focused on. Mm-hmm. Because yes, eventually the private sector will come in, but the private sector will come in only if you have the infrastructure. I don't care what you do. They mm-hmm. will not come in because they are not humanitarian. They're not going to come and help Africa. They have to make money out of it. Let's face it. Mm-hmm. So if you do not have infrastructure to attract the private sector, they will just not come in. So I think the focus on infrastructure is something which is extremely important. Of course, now also you look at um, at IT, it's also important. You know, we see that in many countries in Africa, in spite of the fact that we take, you know, IT for granted, you and I are speaking now, but you go to Africa and I, I see that every time, every time I go, because I used to spend a long time going back 
to and fro from, from Sierra Leone. The first thing that hits me is that it costs me <laughs> as much to have internet access as um, is um, basically what is considered a medium wage in my country. So Absolutely. how many people are going to afford that? You know, yeah. so it is not when they talk, oh, it's internet, you have internet. Internet access is everywhere in the world. You have to go to Africa to understand what this means, mm-hmm. you know. And then, of course, also education. Yes. I believe that education needs to have a lot of priority. And education that is based on today's requirements, not yesterday's. You know, most of our universities are still, you know, teaching Greek or whatever. I don't know what else. (laughs) But, But we need to have the university programs that are adapted to the world realities of today. This would make it possible that Africans qualifying from the universities are able to take the challenge of developing Africa. So I think education is, is also important. But mm-hmm. for some countries like mine, even don't forget about university level, even education at the lower levels, the quality, the quality has not increased, it has gone down. And what do you do with children? who leave school nowadays and cannot even understand the basic concepts. Mm. So what I believe is that education and training is also important to have Africans to be able to contribute to their country's development. Another area which I think requires focus is trade. I think Africa should be given an opportunity to discuss, to have fair terms of trade for their commodity, even if they are only trading in commodities. I think this fairness has to come through the trade-related um, organizations that Africa should give some focus on Africa. Why is Africa not benefiting from trade? Again, it's not only trading goods, trading services. We see how many countries in Asia have benefited from trading services. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that people have to go from Africa to the countries, but if they are trained and they're able to provide the services, then that would give a lot of employment to young people. And this opening to services to Africans would also help to develop Africa. So I think those are the main areas where I see that um, they, which need to be given priority. Of course, I need to also add health. Because yes. I think one thing, one thing Ebola crisis, whilst I was ambassador, brought out was that the health system in some African countries is nothing to write home about. Mm-hmm. We, we, we believed because before the Ebola crisis, we believed that we were going along, WHO was giving. It turned out we were not even meeting the requirements of WHO, but mm-hmm. we were always uh, uh, bragging about, you know, a health clinic is open, our health is doing this, our health is well. Now, when Ebola came, we found that our health systems need to be need to be developed. And also the Ebola also had a good good part of it, is that it was what brought the African Union itself to know that Africa should have its own center for disease control. And now it's working. And now we see that for the COVID crisis, yes. that center is very active in trying to assist countries, working with WHO to assist countries to address the COVID, the COVID crisis. 
most of what I believe should be brought to the forefront. Yeah, I mean, you're giving us really quite a fascinating range of uh, insights uh, on uh, general upgrade program, uh, really, in, in the quality of the leadership, in the quality of the essential infrastructure, and uh, how uh, these are ingredients uh, that will then provide for uh, a self-moving mechanism to uh, take Africans forward. So given that we're reaching towards the uh, the end of the, the interview, I'd also like to uh, return to your uh, uh, quite remarkable background from from engineer to to to, to diplomats, and uh, uh, I was thinking, and of course, you were spanning also, of course, the history of your country that you've uh, you've been through. So perhaps my my last question is a is a little bit personal, but uh, I was wondering what sort of advice you would give to a, a young person and probably a, a young woman from your country who's looking at you and and perhaps uh, intending to follow in your footsteps uh, in an international career. What you would suggest they do. Well, I would suggest, first of all, that they, they go for it. You yeah. know, I'm not saying that every engineer should go to try to be an international <laughs> civil servant, because I know, I mean, when I, when I was, when I got the Imperial Award, I got many engineers saying to me, oh, how do I get into a career in the, <laughs> in the international civil service? I'm saying, no, 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 there's still a lot to do as an engineer back home. And yeah. please, Please, please be an engineer, but only be aware of what is happening in the world around you and how all that fits into what you're trying to do. But for those who have the opportunity to to have an international career, I think it's also good. Because one of the things I feel I, I like to believe I have contributed to is to instill in some of the thoughts that I had for my engineering background into the overall process. Mm-hmm. Because I remember when I, when I first came to, to ILO, it was like, you know, it was like a different world altogether. All of a sudden, all my life I'd been doing engineering, math, science, and then suddenly I came with the social sciences, economics, whatever, and it was like in a different world. I said, what? Does this exist? But later on, I tried to understand them and I could see how I could instill, you know, <laughs> areas relating to engineering. And I think I was able to convince a few people too. And also throughout my, 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 my work at the UN, I've been able to bring in the engineering dimension. I mean, when I was, when we had the new partnership for Africa's development, I was director for Africa. I was supposed to be doing um, advocacy for African development. But then I said, no, 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 let's look at energy specifically. Anyway, so I was able to bring this in, but not every engineer has to come as an international civil servant. And then I was, when I, another interesting thing, when I retired from the UN, I ran back home. I wanted to continue my engineering career before I was asked by the government. And I thought, okay, well, I'll come because I have some insider's knowledge of the UN that could contribute to my country's development. So well, I would go ahead, but not every engineer has to become yeah. Yeah, an international civil servant. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you've certainly also managed to remain the teacher uh, all along, too. So I, I want to thank you very much. Uh, this is all we have time for today, uh, Ambassador Stevens, for joining us uh, today. And of course, many good wishes uh, also for your, your uh, later discussion with the uh, Leadership in International Security course this week. I'm hoping it's going to be a, a really fruitful exchange. So thank you very much for that. 
So to our listeners, thank you again. And uh, of course, you can listen to us next week to hear the latest insights on peace, security, and international cooperation. I'll remind you not to forget to subscribe to us on Anchor FM, on Apple iTunes. You can also follow us on Spotify and on SoundCloud. I'm Dr. Paul Valley with the Geneva Center for Security Policy. And until next week, bye for now.